You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. There's a presidential election in Tanzania today, and I'm going to go ahead and call it. The incumbent John Magafuli will win. We take a look at all the intimidation and hounding of the opposition that ensures the party in power since 1961 stays there. And wine connoisseurs have a peculiarly rich vocabulary, calling out notes of wet leaves and pencil shavings. Dig a bit deeper, though, and putting those descriptions to the test reveals much about whether language shapes perception. First up, though. Alarm is mounting as Europe battles a second wave of COVID-19. Right now, we're well behind this virus in Europe. On Monday, the World Health Organization gave a stark warning. So getting ahead of it is going to take some serious acceleration in what we do, a much more comprehensive nature of measures that are going to be needed to catch up with and get ahead of this virus. The region now accounts for 46% of the world's cases and nearly a third of its deaths. Even countries that seemed to have handled the pandemic deftly are posting worrying numbers. Yesterday, Germany reported a record 15,000 cases. Later today, it's expected to announce a raft of new restrictions, closing bars and banning public gatherings. Across the continent, countries are once again resorting to blunt measures to stem the spread. On Sunday, Spain issued a state of emergency, and Italy imposed a curfew on bars and restaurants. France will also announce far tighter restrictions this evening. These strict but widely varying new measures will be hotly debated, and as winter approaches, the summer of relative freedom is fast fading into memory. It's looking pretty bad for Europe. Edward Carr is The Economist's deputy editor. Not only because you've got a second wave of infections that's really hitting quite hard now, but also the pattern of infections is more widespread. So Central and Eastern Europe, which really escaped a first wave at all, is now being hit quite hard. Northern European countries, the Netherlands and Belgium, are being hit very hard. And the disease has come back in countries like Italy, which really squashed the disease the first time around. It's now coming back with a vengeance. And does it look from this vantage as if the second wave will be as bad as the first? Some physicians are worrying about that. There was a warning just recently by a senior French physician that this could be even worse than the first wave eventually. And in terms of recorded cases, it already is. But, but I think it's important to note that that's in some senses an artefact of the fact there's much more testing going on now. The number of real cases, we reckon, using a model of antibody testing, 
is about, in a country like Spain, a quarter what it was back in the peak in March. Is it clear in all the data how different local national measures are affecting those rising cases? I think it's still quite early to say whether some are working better than others, but they are reasonably different. In Italy, you've now got all the bars, cafes and restaurants shutting at six. In Belgium, they're shutting at eight. There's a state of emergency in Spain. Every country is trying slightly different things. But one thing that is in common is that countries are trying to avoid a blanket emergency break lockdown that you had before. And I think that's because we're going to be living with this throughout the winter into the spring. And that means that measures have to combine efficacy and sustainability. And that's quite a a tricky thing. And as you say, every country is kind of trying its own thing. I mean, why is that? Why isn't there something more of a unified response or a sort of collective wisdom on how to deal with this now? I think it's because it's still a relatively new disease. There are some basic things that everybody agrees on, which is if you can get the disease low and you can track and trace outbreaks really quickly and isolate the people who've been in contact with those who are infected and use social distancing more generally in the population to lower the chances of infection, then you can keep the disease down. But that's easy to say, and it's proving quite hard to do in Europe, in places where very, very strict measures were imposed first time around and people are now a bit frustrated. That combination of getting the right policy and enforcing it and sustaining it is proving really, really hard. I mean, it's interesting, for instance, there was a government survey in France that said back in May, 72% of people were observing social distancing. And that's by September, that had fallen to 32%. So you see inevitably an erosion of these measures. But for example, Sweden has predicated its whole response on this notion of sustainability. Germany, for its part, has a much lauded track and trace system, but numbers are on the rise in both places. They are, but less dramatically than they have been in Spain and France. I mean, in Germany, the worry, I think, is that in certain places, the track and trace system will start to get overwhelmed. And when that happens, this strategy of picking up every outbreak and trying to suppress individual outbreaks becomes very hard to sustain. But it's really interesting in Sweden, they've become more German as time's gone on and are now following a strategy that's fairly close to the Germans, except for the fact they make their trade-offs with sustainability in mind. So, for instance, in Sweden... If you have someone infected in the household, children can still go to school because they think that's more important and more easily sustainable in the long run. And in, uh, in Sweden, you isolate for a week rather than for two weeks. And other European countries look as if they're following in that line. Britain is now talking about following that course. So I think you will see, as people learn and test what's working, what's sustainable, I think you will see some sort of convergence from the disparity of rules and regulations that you have at the moment. Does the European Union itself have a role to play there uh, to coordinate all these national responses? Mostly in terms of information. They're trying to get some consistency of information so people can make comparisons. But I think the actual rules about what you do will and should be local. I mean, Germany, for instance, there are arguments and there's a sort of healthy tension between the centre and the lander, but it's done locally. And generally, that works better. I mean, in Britain, for instance, there's a big argument about whether track and trace works much better when administered by local people who understand and are trusted by the people that they're monitoring. I I think that's very likely to be true. 
But things broadly do look as if they are getting worse and may get out of hand. And there's been talk of full-on national lockdowns again, or even preventative sort of circuit break lockdowns and so on. What's your view on the utility of those? When the disease first struck, the severity of it really took people by surprise. The situation this time is different. There has been time to build capacity. The disease is better understood than it was. If a country gets so overwhelmed that there has to be a complete national lockdown at this point, it is a sign of policy failure that I think has no excuse. Now, could it still happen? It could. It is possible that the track and trace system is swamped, that the ICU are swamped, and that things really start to get very bad indeed. But you have to ask what it would achieve. And unless you think that in two weeks, suddenly you're going to get much better organisation or change behaviour fundamentally, you're going to have to have another one. Very, very costly, really damaging both to the economy and to all sorts of other aspects of people's lives, including their mental health, their education. It's a last resort. And aside from disastrous outcomes like that, I mean, how do you see this progressing? How do you see the winter playing out across Europe? I think it's going to be a bit of a miserable winter. It's really important to understand there's going to be no single measure that suddenly means COVID-19 is no longer a problem. It's the learning and application of a series of measures. So this is a disease that's going to affect the way we live. It will gradually become second nature and it'll fade into normal behaviour. It's not going to die with a bang, it's going to die with a whimper. Edward, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much, Jason. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the 5th Annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Tanzanians head to the polls today. Since the country's independence in 1961, it's been ruled by a single party, despite reforms in the early 1990s that made provisions for others to exist. Even still, the ruling CCM party kept winning, and that streak is expected to continue. Its leader and Tanzania's president, John Magafuli, has been in power since 2015 and is seeking a second term. He recently came to international attention following his response to the pandemic, when he urged people to pray in churches and mosques rather than staying at home. At a church service today, President John Magafuli said prayers had succeeded in reducing the number of COVID cases, although no data has been released for two weeks. Mr. Magafuli has vowed that today's election will be free and fair, as in any country that follows democratic principles. But the view from the ground shows little evidence of those principles in action. It's extremely difficult to get a journalist visa to go to Tanzania, especially around election times. Olivia Ackland writes about Africa for The Economist. 
When I was trying to work out how to get into the country, I, I chatted to a local journalist in Dar es Salaam, and she advised me that if I did come, I could only write something positive about the president and the election. And uh, if I dared to write something that wasn't positive, it would be dangerous for me. So this lack of transparency and lack of media freedom is just one of the ways that the ruling party are preventing this election from being free and fair. Well, what are the other ways? Well, so most of the, the tactics directed at Tundu Lisu, who's the main opposition leader. And Tundu Lisu returned from Belgium in July. And he, he'd been in self-imposed exile in Belgium ever since 2017, when he was shot 16 times outside his house by unknown gunmen. He blames the government for the attack. And so he returned in July and campaigning has not been that easy for him. He's had his convoy held up by the police. The police have fired tear gas at his supporters during rallies. But even so, he's been pulling some big crowds. He promises to unshackle the media and boost business, amongst other things. So if the election really were free and fair, there's a reasonable chance that Tindulisu could win. It would probably be quite a close race. The president, John Magafuli, who's nicknamed the bulldozer, is reasonably popular with some people. He's, he's built lots of roads, he's built high-speed trains, and he promised to clamp down on corruption. But in any case, he will definitely win the election. There's very little chance that Tindu Lucy will be allowed to win. Why, why are you so convinced of that, though? Well, for two reasons. It's, it's been much easier for Magafuli to get his message out. As I mentioned, the media is not free. And Tunja Lisu has had a difficult time campaigning. Even putting up posters has been complicated. The government introduced this tax on promotional materials. So Tunja Lisu has decided to do without posters. And secondly, the Electoral Commission is not independent. It's stuffed with party hacks. Mr. Magafuli actually has the power to appoint election officials. And so, yeah, in short, the Electoral Commission is not independent. But Mr. Magafuli's party has been in, in power for absolutely decades. How, how much different or, or worse is this than prior elections? It's very different. It's a really sort of authoritarian regime. I mean, just if you just look at the Reporters Without Borders Media Freedom Index, Tanzania slipped 50 places since 2015, which is the most significant drop of any country in recent years. And the government has intimidated, harassed, arrested journalists, activists, members of the political opposition. Amnesty International recently said that Tanzania has weaponized the law to the point that no one really knows when they're on the right or the wrong side of it. And so people in Tanzania are much more frightened than they ever were before. So in that sense, the Tanzanian people know who's going to win this race and are fairly well resigned to it by now. Yeah, so lots of Tanzanians that I spoke to are just resigned to the fact that they're going to get another five years of Mr. Magafuli. Even Zito Kabwe, who's the leader of the opposition ACT, was a Lendo party, which is thrown its weight behind Tunjulisu. He said the whole process seems to have been rigged. But I suppose the level of intimidation is great enough that there won't be much protest about that. I don't think that the country will erupt in riots. I think that Zanzibar, which is a semi-autonomous archipelago just off the coast of Tanzania, so the last election in Zanzibar was annulled because the opposition won, basically. The islands are much more volatile. And so if something that happens again, I think Zanzibar might erupt into protest. But I think that Tanzania will remain calm. The bulldozer will rumble on. Olivia, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much, Jason. 
For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. When talking about wine, it's easy to get a bit verbose, even florid. I'm getting cedar, apricot, and wet tennis balls. This one is very bubbly, zesty, almost concrete-like. I'm getting burnt toast, sticky toffee pudding, and pencil sharpenings. The language of wine can be quite easy to mock. It sometimes seems almost intentionally obscure, as though these experts are kind of making it up. Lane Green writes Johnson, The Economist's column on language. But there's some interesting recent research on the interplay of language and thought that looks specifically at the language of wine experts. Well, look, the wine experts would argue that those are the precise terms. Those are, you know, the kinds of flavors you can discern when you're experts like them. Well, you can hear some really crazy flavors out there, which almost suggests that people really are pinpointing something. I mean, your real experts will say things like rubber hose or cedar or barnyard, things like that. It's easy to be skeptical that their noses can really be so accurate. But we all have a sort of sense that if you have a name for something, it really may be easier to somehow keep it in your head that our mental labels point to real things in the world and help us chop reality into manageable chunks that we can then understand. But I mean, what is the interplay between having a name for something and and how we perceive it? Well, a kind of naive view might be that if you don't have a name for something, you can't think about it. Ludwig Wittgenstein wasn't naive, but he did very famously say, the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. And a lot of people have this idea that if you don't have words for something, they're sort of imperceptible to you. So the underlying argument about this goes to a very deep psychological conundrum for us. To what extent does language nudge or condition or even constrain our thought? And it's one of the hottest debates in psychology and in linguistics. And so how does that intersection of the language and the perception figure into wine then? The research that I looked at that was conducted recently looked at wine experts and they split them into two groups and they also had a control group of amateurs. They had them smell a lot of wines and wine flavors, things like vanilla. Half of the experts and half of the amateurs explicitly were told to name those things aloud so that they gave everything a a label, vanilla, cedar, tennis balls. Then they gave them a distraction to kind of clear their heads a little bit and then asked them later how well they could remember the odors that they had identified the first time around by giving them the same little vials with the same smells in them. And they wanted to see whether those who had labeled the odors the first time around, whether they were better at remembering the odors than those who hadn't explicitly labeled. Well, as expected, the wine experts did better than the amateurs across the board, but those who had named the odors the first time around were not any better at the task the second time than those who had not been given a chance to do so. And so all told, what does this leave you with? What's your takeaway message here for the connection then between language and perception? Well, this study told us that mental labels are not crucial to the memory of non-linguistic things like a smell. So in that sense, maybe the limits of our language aren't the limits of our world. But there is other research that shows some effect of having mental labels for things that make it easier to either distinguish or perceive some things a little bit faster than those people who don't have such words. The debate will go on, but for a long time, it was a very simple, either language governs thought or it plays almost no role. The research is now giving us a much more sophisticated an interesting view of what role language plays. More people are agreeing that it plays some role, but it's not everything, nor is it nothing. This gives us a new way to look at the question of the connection between language and thought. Lane, thanks for joining us and cheers. Jason, thanks to you and bottoms up. 
that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.